G.K. Chesterton once noted many years ago that there are no new lies, no new heresies. Man is simply not that creative. Al Mohler, more recently of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said something similar. He said, there are no new heresies, only heresies dressed up and repackaged for a new generation. Both men are right. The heretics of today are mere copycats. They're recycling the refuse of yesterday. They're diving deep into the dumpsters of church history, pulling up these smelly, crumpled up scraps of theological garbage and presenting those scraps to unwitting modern day Christians and seekers alike as being sort of a new way to to think about faith or an innovative way now to approach Christianity or an enlightened way to reflect upon Jesus. Think about it. We have groups, modern-day cult groups, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, who openly deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And all they've done is simply resurrected and and repackaged the ancient heresy of Arianism, a a heresy that plagued the early Christian church, especially in the 4th century, leading to the calling of the infamous Council of Nicaea. And then there are the theological liberals and the so-called carnal Christians of our day, Those would be those who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ and who would say that so long as you intellectually affirm that Jesus is the savior, so long as you name and claim his saving benefits, you don't need to acknowledge him as your Lord. In other words, you can walk that aisle and you can pray that prayer and you can ask Jesus into your heart and you can do the whole church camp thing where you etch the date of your commitment on a tree trunk or you throw a pine cone in the fire or you verbally profess as a sleep-deprived and sugared-up teenager just how much you love Jesus, but then go on living how you lived before, falling back into those same old patterns of sin, going back to the same old sources of sin and proving that there was never a true divorce from that old lifestyle of sin. And that one's not new either. That form of so-called Christianity, where you acknowledge Jesus with your mind, but don't truly surrender your heart and your will to him, is really just an ancient form of Gnosticism, all rebundled and repackaged for modern times. And that heresy, Gnosticism, was this, this old school heresy that taught that man's soul and his body were separate, totally divorced, and, and, and living in separate spheres, And the soul was considered good while the body, the flesh, was considered evil. And what that led to was this teaching that so long as the soul was saved, meaning one intellectually affirmed with their mind Jesus as Lord, they could go on living in the body of flesh just however they wanted because the flesh is the flesh. It's sinful. What are you going to do about it? And that really describes a large swath of modern-day evangelicalism, does it not? I've got my fire insurance policy. My soul is safe, so it's now going back to living life as usual. I can go on indulging the flesh as I please. Or what about this one? This modern-day unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament crowd. It's been popularized of late by Andy Stanley with his large platform and his increasingly shocking public statements is proving himself over and over to be the wolf we feared him to be. And this idea, too, of ditching or or unhitching the Old Testament from the New is also nothing new. It's simply recycling the ancient heresy of Marcionism, which taught that the God of the Old Testament is this 
mean and nasty and grouchy old God, but that the Jesus of the New Testament is someone entirely different, unlike the God of the Old Testament. Jesus was all about love and puppies and butterflies and doing whatever you want. And because we naturally like that Jesus, buddy Jesus, rather than the grumpy old God of the Old Testament, well, all we want to do now is say that the two testaments must testify to two different gods. And wouldn't you know it, the God of the Old Testament has to go. He's over the whole of the ship like Jonah. Don't need him anymore. All we need is the New Testament. And not even the entirety of the New Testament, mind you, but only those parts of the New Testament we like. You know, those that don't mention hell and judgment and that sort of thing. And then swing the pendulum to the opposite side of the unhitched crowd would be this modern-day Hebrew roots movement. If you haven't heard about it yet, you will, certainly, in the future. This is a modern-day movement. It's, it's gaining some steam in different circles. And this is really nothing more than the old Judaizers of the apostolic era now resurrected and come back to life. As they teach that law-keeping and Torah-keeping, the, the very subjects that we covered in last week's sermon, that you have to keep regulations and rules pertaining to food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and such are essentials to true Christian faith. See, Chesterton was right when he said there are no new lies, no new heresies. Man is simply not that creative. And Al Mohler is right that there are no new heresies, only heresies dressed up and repackaged for a new generation. And even more on target was King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.9, where he infamously says, there is nothing new under the sun. The point is, the devil has been working from the same playbook for thousands of years now. And billions of people over the course of the centuries have had the wool pulled over their eyes while they proceed on this blind death march into the flames of a real hell. This morning... As we continue on our study in the book of Colossians, we're going to see another category of false teachings, which were being pushed by the promoters of what we now know as the Colossian heresy. And as we work through our text today, we're going to see that these false teachings were not only real and threatening and dangerous in first century policy, but rather, like these other false teachings I've just mentioned, they live on today through various reused and recycled heresies that are now promoted in the 21st century and are just as threatening to us here and now. So we'd be wise to heed what the Apostle Paul in Colossians, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote in our text for today, not only so that we can be good students of first century Colossian religion, but so that we can be wise and discerning followers of Jesus Christ right here and now. Our text for today is Colossians 2 And we're going to be in two verses this morning, verses 18 and 19. Colossians 2, verse 18 and 19. God's word reads, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Just as we have here in our English Bibles in the original Greek text, verses 18 and 19 here, though two verses are really just one long sentence. And the sentence you see there starts with a command, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. 
And then Paul then from there strings out these five participles, these five connected subsidiary thoughts in which he lays out five marks of fraudulent faith. That is five ways in which these new believers here at Colossae were at risk of being defrauded in their newfound faith and five ways in which these false teachers in this city had fraudulent faith, fake faith, no faith at all. And those five marks of fraudulent faith are sort of sprinkled throughout verses 18 and 19. We see them there. Self-abasement, worship of angels, visions, being inflated without cause. That's number four. And then not holding fast to the head would be number five. So as we always do, we'll go through each of these words line by line and letter by letter. But before we do so, we really need to anchor in on this command that Paul gives at the beginning here at verse 18. That's the the hub of this passage for today. That's the engine that drives the rest of what he's about to say when he says at the beginning of verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Now, right out of the gate, we notice some similarities between where we're starting this morning and where we were last time in verse 16 as we kicked things off. You'll recall that last week, you can look up the page a bit, in verses 16 and 17, Paul was writing against some of the more Judaistic aspects of the Colossian heresy. And he began with the words there in verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge. And then he lists out all the regulations there. We also saw last week, though, that verse 16 actually resumes the thought that Paul began back in Colossians 2.8, where he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So there's another command. So you have these three commands, one after the other, verse 8, verse 16, and now in our text, verse 18. See to it that no one takes you captive, verse 8. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge, verse 16. And then our text, verse 18, see to it that no one takes you captive. Each one of those, by the way, is what I alluded to last week as a a third-party imperative, where Paul is not so much commanding the Colossians directly. Rather, his imperative is directed at the false teachers themselves, the effect of which would be to shape how the Colossians responded to the false teachers. And the first one that we deal with here in verse 18 is, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And what does that mean to say, as Paul says here, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize? Well, the phrase here in Greek can be translated a number of different ways, and in fact has been translated a number of different ways in various English translations. So for instance, the ESV has it as let no one disqualify you. Uh, The NKJV has it as let no one cheat you of your reward. Older translations have it as, let no man beguile you. There's a word that needs to come back, of your reward. Or let no one defraud you as an umpire. Or let no man declare you disqualified. Those are some of the more ancient translations. Now, whatever translation you use, is is this a reference to salvation? When he says here, let no one defraud you of your prize? Is Paul here somehow saying that the false teachers there at Colossae had the ability through their deceit and through their deception and through their lies and through their false teaching to rob true believers in Jesus Christ of the faith and the salvation they already had? Most certainly not. We can rule that one out. Because we know that the scripture testifies repeatedly over and over to the eternal security of the true believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, you can jot down just a few of these just for reference. John 10, 27 and 28, the words of our Lord himself, where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Or we think of the words of Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39, familiar words, I'm sure, where he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or Ephesians 4.30, Paul there says, we have been sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Peter 1.5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One more, Jude 24 says that God himself is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. In other words, bringing it back here to Colossians, verse 18 of chapter two, those words keep defrauding you of your prize cannot be a reference to the false teachers somehow stealing away the Colossians' salvation. No, their salvation had already been foreordained by God the Father. It had been purchased by God the Son, and it was sealed by God the Spirit. And no heretic, no matter how creative or uncreative he was, could rob them of that salvation. So then what does this mean here in verse 18, where he says, let no one keep defrauding you? If it's not a reference to salvation, what is he talking about? Well, Paul is, with this language, charging the Colossians there, to persevere, to run the race faithfully, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And as he does so, so often in his, in his scriptural writings, Paul brings in an illustration from the athletic competitions and the games of his day to paint this picture of perseverance. In fact, go over with me one book to your left to the book of Philippians. Like Colossians, Philippians, the epistle of joy is a prison epistle written by Paul as he was wearing chains. And we know from Philippians 3 that he gives at the very beginning of that chapter sort of his CV, his resume of who he once was, Hebrew of Hebrews, for instance. But then we get into this text on perseverance. I'll start at verse 7 here of chapter 3 to give us a bit of a running start. And he says in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then here's the the meat of it. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those words there, I press on, are, are all about perseverance perseverance toward the the prize. Or we think of Paul's words, and you don't have to to turn there now, but 1 Corinthians 9, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, 
but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That's the prize, the crown of righteousness, the imperishable wreath. Or over in 2 Timothy 2.5, in some of the final words that he would ever write, Paul says to Timothy, his child in the faith, after telling him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So the one who competes by the rules, the one who presses on in faith, the one who perseveres, wins the prize. And bringing it now back to Colossians, Paul here is saying with that same mindset to these believers, don't let these false teachers slow you down. Don't let them trip you up. Don't let them get you off the track. Don't let them defraud you of your prize. Instead, you are to persevere and remain firm in your faith. Remain on course, run your race, claim your prize. See what the promoters of this Colossian heresy were doing was they were really threatening to take these believers' eyes off that prize, that eternal prize. See, in Colossians 1.22, just on the other side of my page here, it says they'd already been reconciled to God. They'd been reconciled in Christ's fleshly body through death. It had been done and paid for. So if they were to fall for these heretical teachings, it wasn't that their salvation was now in jeopardy. We've already seen that. But their testimony certainly could be sullied. And they could, as we know from 2 Corinthians 5, lose out on certain eternal rewards. That's why Paul here says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. He didn't want to see them sully the name of Christ. He didn't want to see them lose out on eternal rewards. And that's what happens when, as we saw last week, you elevate shadows over substance. And that's what happens, as we're going to see this week, when you fall prey to these various marks of fraudulent faith. These believers here had already been qualified by God the Father, Colossians 1, 12 and 13, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And they had, as far as we can tell, up to this point, already been running faithfully the race as believers, Paul here simply wanted to see them continue to run, to believe the things that qualified people believe, and to live in a way that the way that qualified people live, to not be defrauded by these false teachers who were seeking to persuade them that their faith, their simple faith in Christ's death and resurrection was not enough. In fact, we see a picture of what Paul is driving at here. If you go over to the little book of 2 John, Turn to the end of your Bibles, if you would. You got the book of Revelation. One book to the left is Jude. Two more books to the left would be the little letter of 2 John. The same spirit that John writes these words is what Paul is getting at in our text, Colossians 2. Look at 2 John 6, where John says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. And then look what it says here. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished 
but that you may receive a full reward. That's what Paul wanted for the Colossians. He wanted them to receive their full reward. So going back to Colossians in verse 18, seeing that command here, which sits at the beginning of this sentence and drives everything that follows are, are these words, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And then there's that little word by, which is sort of the hinge now into the rest of the passage. And then next come these five examples, these five marks of fraudulent faith. And these will take up the rest of our time this morning. And again, these are self-abasement, worship of angels, visions, being inflated without cause, and not holding fast to the head. We'll start with the first one there, self-abasement as our first mark of fraudulent faith. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Now, our first thought as we read this might be to ask, how would the Colossians be deprived of, of any prize? Simply by the fact that someone else here, namely the false teachers, were delighting in something. In this case, self-abasement. Put another way, how would what someone else delights in have anything to do with the Colossians' faith? I mean, faith is, is personal. So whatever someone else might delight in should have no bearing on our faith or, or the Colossians' faith. It's a fair critique and observation and question to ask. And the answer to how to address that question is found in the fact that those words delighting in, I believe are better translated as the ESV has it, as insisting on, insisting on. In other words, the sense here is not so much that the false teachers in Colossae were, were simply finding joy in their deviant doctrines. Rather, they were insisting that, that others, and specifically the Colossian believers here, do the same. They were evangelists, in other words, for their own form of fraudulent faith. Not themselves content with being contaminated with their own spiritual sickness. They wanted to spread it to everybody else. They not only delighted in what's described here as being self-abasement, they insisted that others, and namely the Christians here at Colossae, do the same. The implication is that if the Colossians, the Colossian Christians didn't buy into what these teachers were teaching, if they didn't get with the program and themselves start engaging in self-abasement, they would be considered in a, in a lower religious caste. They would be considered lesser than people of faith. To which Paul here says, that's nonsense. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by insisting on this, this very thing, self-abasement. Now we have to get into, well, what is self-abasement? What's Paul talking about there when he's speaking of self-abasement? Well, that word, self-abasement, if you looked in most lexicons, you would see the very first definition of that word is humility. Now we hear that word, humility, and, and we think, well, humility, great, that, that's a good thing. Humility is a Christ-like trait that we all ought to have and we all ought to pursue. And, and indeed it is. Humility is, no doubt, a virtue that any Christian ought to possess to some degree and every Christian ought to be striving to embody even more. We think of passages, of course, like Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Or 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or just look down the page at Colossians 3.12. We'll be there in a few years where it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, 
Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So if humility is a godly Christian characteristic and a desired Christian virtue, why is Paul calling out the false teachers here for insisting that the true believers there themselves pursue humility? Doesn't the fact that the false teachers, who I'm calling the false teachers, were were stressing humility show that they weren't false teachers at all, but actually good teachers of good doctrine? No. It doesn't mean that at all. See, the false teachers here are rightly thought of as false teachers because the self-abasement or the humility that they were putting on and promoting here at Colossae was actually a form of false humility. That term, false humility, I'm sure we're familiar with, right? It it covers a whole range of behaviors and conduct today. It's something that masks itself and disguises itself as humility and being Christ-like, but it's actually steeped in pride and, and reeks of pride. Examples of false humility, and some of these may relate to you in different ways, are people pleasing, which is a violation of Galatians 1.10. Constantly making negative comments about yourself. Oh, I'm just a vile wretch and sinner. Fishing for compliments. Refusing to receive deserved praise. Humble bragging. Ever seen that, especially in our social media world? So blessed to have four perfect children, all of whom have 4.0 GPAs, all of whom went to Ivy League schools, who married doctors. Jesus is good. Praise the Lord. That's called humble bragging. Self-deprecating humor. Another form of false humility. These are just some of the ways that we display false humility in our day. Some of you might be familiar with Charles Dickens's old work, David Copperfield. And in that work, there's this character named Uriah Heep, who is the assistant of David Copperfield. And He's just over the top in the ways that he tries to show himself to be humble. Always seeking to please Copperfield. Always going out of his way to serve Copperfield well. Service with a smile and the whole time he's cheating him. Showing great respect and reverence and honor on the outside. But on the inside was a totally pride sick liar. And that's us too. When we put on shows of false humility a feigned form of humility that we actually don't have or feel. It's poisonous. It's toxic. And we have to be willing to at least examine ourselves to make sure that we aren't putting on a show of humility like Uriah Heep when in fact we have hearts full of pride. Now bringing it back to our Colossian context, Paul here had a very specific form of false humility in view when he writes these words. And we get some hints as to what it was he was referring to in two different places. First of all, just a few verses down there in verse 23, we see that whatever form of false humility these false teachers were projecting in Colossae, it had something to do with their bodies. It had something to do with how they treated their bodies and how they deprived themselves in their bodies. Look at Colossians 2.23. He says, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement. There's our word. And he goes on and says, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So this self-abasement, in other words, or, or false humility 
that was being practiced and pushed here in Colossae had something to do with severe treatment of the body. So there's clue number one. Clue number two is this, and it comes from the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see this same word for self-abasement used to describe the practice of fasting in various Old Testament passages. So we put those two ideas together, self-abasement being about deprival of the body and self-abasement having to do with fasting as we see it in the Old Testament. And the conclusion I come to is that what these false teachers were engaged in was some form of bodily deprivation, likely fasting, in which they were intentionally seeking to draw attention to themselves, all as an act of false humility. Like the Pharisees who had come before him, these false teachers were making a parade of their piety. Self-deprivation, in other words, had become a matter now of self-exaltation. Far from being humbled by the fact that they were in fact still very much pride sick, they actually demonstrated pride in their so-called humility. And the specific form of false humility they practiced was totally antithetical to the way of Christ and to the very teachings of Christ. Turn with me, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 6, sort of midway through the Sermon on the Mount, where we're going to encounter the words of our Lord on this very topic of false humility, specifically in the area of fasting. Here, of course, he's addressing the Pharisees of his day. Look what he says in Matthew 6. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Jesus here says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So back to Colossians. Far from fasting in secret, the false teachers here were making fasting a public spectacle. And not only that, and to make matters worse, they're trying to influence these early believers here in this city to follow their example and to do as they did. And again, Paul's whole point here is to tell this early gathering of believers, don't do it. Don't take the bait. Don't fall for it. Don't be defrauded of your, of your prize by those who delight in self-abasement through their severe treatment of the body, through their fasting. Instead, he's going to emphasize as we eventually get to Colossians 3, those very characteristics we've already seen in Colossians 3.12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I agree with Jonathan Edwards on this point, who once said that nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach than humility. Indeed, there is no virtue more Christ-like than humility. There is no virtue that keeps one further from the clutches of Satan than humility. There is no sure way to remain on the path of faithfulness than humility. As you look forward to one day receive your prize, your eternal reward, you do so with humility. You follow the example of Christ who in his ministry here on earth, Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, was gentle and humble 
in heart. We need to move on to our second point of our second mark of fraudulent faith. The false teachers there were not only threatening to defraud the Colossians of their prize by their insistence on self-abasement, false humility, through their public attention-seeking displays of fasting, they were also insisting on, as we see here in verse 18, the worship of angels. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Now, the first knot that we need to unravel here is whether Paul here is referring to an insistence on worshiping with the angels, the living God. In other words, worshiping God as the angels do. Or instead, is he referring to worship of angels themselves? The traditional interpretation is the latter, that he's referring to worship of angels themselves. And I find that interpretation to be the most persuasive. Meaning Paul here is calling out the false teachers for their worship of the angelic host. Now, we know from other places in Scripture that certain classes of angels, they're being described as worshiping God, as they ought. Angels are created beings. They're creatures. And the reasonable response of any creature is to worship the creator. We see that in the the heavenly throne room scene of Isaiah 6, where the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see that again in Revelation 4 and 5 in John's vision of the heavenly throne room. We, we see that around Christmas time when we go to Luke 2.14 and it talks about the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So in passages like those, angels are actually modeling for us humans what worship of the living God ought to look like. But we have to remember in context here, here in Colossians, Paul is condemning false teaching. The false teaching that was making headway in this early church. And it wouldn't make sense for him to be condemning false teachers for worshiping God the way angels were rightly worshiping God. Rather, what makes more sense here is that what Paul is condemning here is worship of angels as as a practice which would, of course, been a violation of the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And what did this angel worship look like here in in Colossae? Well, apparently, as far as we can tell, what was being taught by these false teachers was that, that man is too unworthy to approach God directly through Christ. Man is still so unworthy and still so vile and still so wicked that he needs more mediators than just Christ to approach God. Hence the worship of angels as so-called mediators between God and man. Angels were now mediators between God and man in Colossae. Does that strike anybody as being wrong? Yeah, how many mediators are there between God and man? One. First Timothy 2 5. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, the false teachers here in Colossae and their promotion of angel worship were totally disregarding that truth. That there is one mediator between God and man. They were completely ignoring and disregarding the fact that a Christian can, as Hebrews 4.16 puts it, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And in doing so, receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. They were completely disregarding and ignoring the fact, as Hebrews 10.10 says, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. They were disregarding the fact that Jesus in his own words said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
They were disregarding the fact, as Romans 5.1 puts it, that having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not angels, not other mediators, through Jesus Christ. And they were disregarding the fact, if you look back at Colossians 1.16, that Jesus Christ himself had created the very angels that they were now approaching in worship. Colossians 1.16, for by him, meaning Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So there's this built-in sense here in Colossians 2 of exasperation on Paul's part. There's this inherent rebuke of the false teachers and this, this sense of exasperation toward these early believers there. The sense behind Paul's words here is, why would you worship angels as this supposed mediator between God and man when you already have access to God through the very one, the one mediator, Christ, who actually created those angels? See, God has made salvation possible through Jesus Christ. He sanctifies sinners through Jesus Christ. He's made it possible for us to come directly to God through Jesus Christ There are no other roads to God. There are no other pathways to God. There are no other mediators between God and man. Now, lest we think that this idea of elevating and worshiping one other mediator to a place where they can mediate between God and man as though this was only a problem in first century policy, like we don't do that today, I've got some news for you. That's simply not the case. See, we have, and this is just one example something along the line of 1.4 billion professed Roman Catholics living on this planet right now. And do you know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches them? The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is a co-mediator along with Christ. In other words, it is a piece of Catholic dogma that that it is not exclusively through Christ that a person has access to God, but it's through Mary. And that's not just me being loose-lipped with my thoughts up here. That comes straight from their catechism, page 969 to be exact. It says, therefore, the blessed virgin is invoked in the church under the title of advocate, helper, benefactress, and get this, mediatrix. So the Bible teaches, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's how many mediators between God and man? One. The Roman Catholic catechism says, well, there's at least two one of whom is Mary. The Roman Catholic Church, in other words, clearly disregards the teachings of Scripture and the the Scripture's teaching about the singularity of there being one mediator between God and man. Now, sadly, if I may, just for a few seconds, that's not the only place where the Catholic Church's false teachings about Mary encroach upon what the Bible teaches exclusively about the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, did you know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it was not only Jesus who is immaculately conceived, but Mary herself? And do you know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it was not only Jesus who lived a sinless life, but Mary herself? And do you know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that, yes, Jesus ascended into heaven, but Mary was assumed into heaven, just like Enoch or Elijah in in the Old Testament? And do you know that the Roman Catholic Church will teach that, okay, Jesus is Lord of the earth, but Mary's, guess what? She's the queen of heaven. Mary herself, who in Luke 1.47 infamously said that her spirit had rejoiced in God, her savior, 
would be mortified at what the modern-day Catholic Church has done with her, including the church's claim that she is a co-mediator or a co-mediatrix with the one mediator, Jesus Christ. Mary, like us, was a sinner. Mary, like us, needed salvation from her sin. And salvation for her sin was offered in the same way it's offered for any of us through the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other mediator, not Mary today and not the angels that were being worshipped in Colossians back in Paul's day, which is why he's urging them here in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize through the worship of the angels. Let's move on. One more mark of fraudulent faith we've, we need to keep going is we have self-abasement. We have the worship of the angels. Here's our third one. I'm sure this will stir up no controversy. Taking his stand on visions he has seen. This one honestly ought to strike an especially resonant chord in our day. We do live in the days where just over the past couple of decades, you could have driven to Mardell or, or Hobby Lobby or nowadays go on Amazon and pick up a variety of books that fall under that category of heaven tourism, right? Those fanciful stories which have titles like 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real and Proof of Heaven and To Heaven and Back. And in these books, these authors make these claims and usually through a near-death experience that they visited heaven, hence the heaven tourism title, And on these visits, these authors claim they experienced something of Jesus and and something of angels and something of God and something, of course, of heaven. But then they came back to earth. And of course, their initial inclination was to write a book and to cash in and to get $100,000 or maybe a million dollars. Now, there are those who read those books, and I understand that that's a part of the population today, but there are just a few cautions I want to give, not just to heaven tourism books, but to all manners of vision theology. First, going back to just the heaven books for now, they completely undermine the testimony of scripture. Number one, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die. How many times? Once. And then comes the judgment. Well, if these heaven tourism books are to be believed, well, that means then scripture is to be disbelieved. Because the people who wrote those books, unlike the rest of us, will apparently die twice. Second, about these types of uh, vision of heaven books and, and other types of vision theology that's out there, they undermine the sufficiency of scripture. So it's not just undermining the, the veracity of scripture or the testimony of scripture, they undermine the, the sufficiency of scripture. See, when people say, I, I went to heaven, or I had a vision of an apparition, or an angel, or a ghost, or deceased Aunt Linda. A vision of whatever. The minute that you start measuring any experience that you have on this earth by your two deteriorating and imperfect and flawed eyeballs against the perfect revelation of God in his word, you start heading down a very slippery slope in which your subjective experiences are now the arbiter over God's objective truth. This is captured by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter himself saw Jesus at the transfiguration in his transfigured state in Matthew 17. And in 2 Peter 2, Peter says, my, my eyes saw all of that. 
but they still, my eyes were still not as clear and compelling a witness as to what scripture has testified to about that very Jesus. That's why he says, we have a prophetic word, 2 Peter 1.19, made more sure. Made more sure than what? Than our eyes have shown us. I just have to throw this one in there too. If, back to vision, to heavenly visions, if those individuals have actually experienced a vision of heaven and they write their books and they do their interviews and they do their podcasts, how cruel was it of God, seriously, to send them back here? I mean, seriously, how awful would it be to go from that experience, the Isaiah 6 experience, the Revelation 4 and 5 experience, to Sacramento or Akron or Pittsburgh. All this to say, what we're experiencing in our broader evangelical world with all this focus and this emphasis on receiving visions and fresh revelation and not only visions of heaven, but about anything, it's not something new. It was happening here in Colossae as these false teachers were taking their stand, as it says here in verse 18, on visions they had seen. Now, those words, taking their stand, that's not referring necessarily to like taking a stand on a moral issue or taking a stand about an ethical cause. No, this taking his stand language pictures a person placing himself in in a perch or on a platform and showcasing their higher level of of religious experience and, and sophistication. The Colossian heresy, as you've heard me say up here before, had these traces of early Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism was all about at at its core, the core meaning of Gnosis is knowledge. It was pursuing or having some form of secret knowledge, having some sort of access to these deep, unrevealed secret mysteries that you got through these unprovable and irreproducible experiences, such as receiving visions. And getting back to our context here, Paul was communicating to these early believers here that even though they were being pressured to say, I've received a vision, just like the teachers here, he's saying they needed to reject any teaching arising there that had any trace or any element of saying that a vision was the mark of true religion or that a vision was a mark of foundational faith. And that's because, as we've seen already in our study of Colossians, all the fullness of divine knowledge of God it is not found in visions and it's not found in dreams and it's not found in experiences. It's found in Christ himself. Colossians 2.10, in him, you have been made complete. We need to move on to our fourth mark of foundational faith. We see these at the end of verse 18, where he says, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. These false teachers were inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. So enraptured were they with all that they were experiencing and and this unique way they were worshiping and all these visions they were claiming to be seeing. In other words, so enraptured were they with themselves, so proud were they of their elite status and their inside knowledge, their gnosis, that it says here they had become inflated without cause. Or some of the older translations have it, they had become vainly puffed up. They'd become conceited without reason. Their knowledge, 1 Corinthians 8.1, had made them arrogant. They had, through their external outward appearances, shown themselves, or they looked from the outside like they were humble and religious. They were fasting. They were seeing visions. These were the spiritual Illuminati. 
But in reality and internally, they were not acting in subjection to Christ. They were the types of people that Paul warned about in 2 Timothy 3, 5, where on the outside, they hold to a form of godliness, but on the inside, they deny its power. They were puffed up with pride. They were arrogant, and they expressed their arrogance by by arrogating to themselves the, the right and the responsibility to stand in judgment over other believers. And the root cause of their pride and this puffed up perspective, as we see here at the end of verse 18, was their fleshly mind. The promoters of the false teachings here had unspiritual minds, minds of flesh, fleshly minds. Romans 8, 6 says that the mind set on the flesh is death. That's exactly, by the way, how, the, how Paul would call the, refer to the unregenerate person's mind in Ephesians 4. In fact, flip over with me back to Ephesians where Paul comments on the mind of the unregenerate person in Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened to their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. I'll stop it there. Bringing it back to Colossians 2.8. The fleshly mind, as Paul describes it here, the unregenerate mind in in Ephesians 4, those two things go together. The fleshly mind is the mark of a mind that has not been renewed. It remains in its old, darkened, unregenerate state. Meaning that the false teachers here, though surely intelligent and surely learned and surely persuasive and surely compelling, Paul's saying here, you still don't follow them. Because they had corrupted minds and they had unregenerate minds. And that unregenerate mind was a a reflection of their unregenerate hearts. We've been through one verse. We got one to go. Verse 19. Here's our fifth mark of fraudulent faith. He says, and not holding fast to the head. That's, That's the fifth mark. Not holding fast to the head. And then we get the explanation here from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. So the main idea here sitting at the head of this verse is that the false teachers in Colossae, as we've seen actually expressed in various ways throughout this entire book, were not holding fast to the head, which is just a different way of saying they were not holding fast to Christ. They claimed to have all the answers. They claimed to be religious. They claim to have experienced all sorts of, of mystical experiences. They claim that their synchronistic way of melding together all these religious ideas with true faith in Christ, that that, that was the real way. They claim to have attained some higher plane of, of spiritual reality. But the only problem was the form of religion that they were promoting lacked the most essential ingredient of all, which is Christ himself. Christ, of course, is the head of that collection of redeemed individuals going back from the day of Pentecost to the one day day of the rapture known as the church. Colossians 1.18, we've already seen, he also is the head of the body, the church, 
Ephesians 5.23 says the same thing. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. And as the head goes, so goes the body. That's what we see in the rest of verse 19. So after saying, not holding fast to the head, then the, the subsidiary thought here is, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. The parallel passage, by the way, there is Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, where it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The point of both passages, Colossians 2, 19, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 is this, no Christ, meaning no head, no life, no vitality. The joints and the ligaments begin to disintegrate and to, to deteriorate. And the growth, which is from God, as he says here at the end of verse 19, eventually evaporates. Such was the case with the false teachers here at Colossae. Because what they were doing and what they were teaching and, and what they were stressing and what they were emphasizing and what they were pushing and what they were proclaiming, because none of it was in connection with the head, that none of it was in connection with Christ. They ultimately had zero chance of having any lasting success in this region. Whatever inroads they had made there in Colossae would never reach their ultimate goal or their destination. They were not ultimately going to succeed in their efforts to sway these Colossian believers to follow their false teaching. And all of that had to do with the fact that their beliefs and their teachings here were devoid of Christ. They lacked the essential ingredient, Christ. And so what we've seen here in our text this morning is that the false teachers once again are, are heaping judgment and judgment upon these new believers in this area because they refuse, they meaning the believers there, refuse to put on these man-made practices that they were imposing on them. And here now what we see is Paul, directed by the Spirit, is now heaping judgment on those false teachers. Not only for misleading and deceiving these early converts, but for themselves not holding fast to Christ, the head of the church, the creator and the sustainer of all. And for themselves failing to cling to Christ, whom we see in Colossians 2, 3, has all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. They're all hidden in him. And for failing to recognize what really is the theme of this entire letter, which is the preeminence of Christ. The false teachers here were not glorying in Jesus Christ. They were glorying in themselves and their abilities and their knowledge and their experiences, which is why Paul here has been saying to the Colossians and he's saying through the Colossians to all of us today, don't worry about any external shows of, of superior humility demonstrated by others. Don't trouble yourselves with any grandstanding parade of so-called piety demonstrated by others. Ignore any claim of others that they've been elevated to some super spiritual plane of, of experience, like having visions, for instance. Because if they aren't holding fast to Christ, ultimately, they've got nothing. And you and I, on the other hand, if you've trusted in Christ and you're abiding in Christ and you're daily putting on Christ and you're pursuing Christ, you have everything. 
because he is the true head and fount of life. And in him, Colossians 2.10, once again, you have been made complete. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this rich section of your word that we've been privileged to study this morning. I thank you for the timelessness of your word and the truth of your word. I thank you that we can study a text like this, one that clearly has a unique context and is distinct part of the world and a distinct segment of history, but it has such application for us today as we think about the various forms of false teaching that are out there and how important it is to be discerning and to to have eyes wide open to false teaching that will come our way, but at the same time to remember that we are made whole in Christ. We have all that we need in Christ. We are complete in Christ and how important it is to hold fast to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we take the negative example of the false teachers here and learn from them. May we be like the Colossian believers were, those who were unwilling to be swayed, unwilling to follow false teaching, and instead find our hope and our anchor and our source of daily joy and strength in Christ himself. God, we thank you for this time. We pray that Christ would be honored in our lives this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.